There is something sacred about the remains of those who have passed before us. Our friends, family, loved ones. Those whose memories we cherish in our minds and hearts throughout our own lives. Even those we've never met. As if somehow we inherently fear a vengeful spirit may find and make our lives a little less peaceful if we were to disturb the final resting places of any who have gone. However, that doesn't always seem to stop some from interfering with the, I hesitate to say, but bits and, well, pieces of those who may be deemed as somehow more valuable for some reason or another. Today, I take you on a journey of a few stories where the pieces of a few didn't quite find the rest that seems guaranteed when we all take that final sleep. Welcome. I'm Rocket Fox. Join me as we embrace the strange. Before we really dive in, I wanted to take a moment to send some heartfelt thanks to Javi Artist for the review on Apple Podcast and to Purple Purpler, who commented on one of my favorite Reddit spaces, Witches vs. Patriarchy, who says they listened to the podcast while working from home. Thank you so, so much. It is truly my joy to bring you these stories, and I am beyond thrilled to see where the future of strangeness takes us. And another huge thank you to you, because you are the reason I do this. And without further ado, on we go. Our first story this week is the one that really sparked this topic for me, or rather flipped the bird with the sort of profound cavalierity, which I've now decided is a word, that it entranced me to the degree that I actually had to visit this very piece myself in person. A man described as a musician and scholar, though along with so many other intriguing historical geniuses, seemed to possess the capacity for just about anything he set his mind to. Galileo was born in Pisa in 1564, he would enter Pisa University at 16 with a focus on medicine, though, as I read, became sidetracked by mathematics. Those sexy, sexy numbers. And he actually ended up dropping out after which he made his known discoveries. The first of which, in 1583, were the rules describing the motions of pendulums at the ripe old age of 19. It's enough to make you a little bit sick. What? No, I'm not. I'm not jealous. Anyway, Galileo would go down in history as an extremely independent thinker, as one would seemingly have to be to develop new methodologies and formulas in mathematics, physics, and astronomy, to name a few. And it seemed this disregard of societal convention followed him into other areas of his life as well. For example living with 
and having three children with his lover Marina Gamba, despite never marrying. For anyone curious about the later saucy details, it does seem when Galileo was called to permanently take a position at the Medici court, she did marry Giovanni Bartoluzzi, and from what my research says, the three did maintain cordial connections, so that's nice. For anyone curious, definitely check out the Galileo Project, linked in the show notes. There is a lot of really interesting information there. So, as you might have guessed based on what I just said, Galileo became a member of the Medici court, doing hashtag just science things, such as building telescopes and writing such little things as a dialogue concerning two chief world systems, in which he looked at both sides of the heliocentric or earth-centered versus sun-centered of the universe debate. Evidently, however, his, quote, dialogue was more of a write-up on how one particular side was ridiculous, and here is why, which was a bold move, considering merely 16 years earlier, the Catholic Church had put Copernicus's De Revolutionibus on its index of banned books. And for anyone keeping track, that would have been the first modern scientific argument for a sun-centered universe. A year after Galileo's dialogue was published, he was summoned before a Roman Inquisition, perhaps the last place you would want to be summoned. Initially, his response to the questioning was, What? No, no, I definitely did not promote a sun-centered universe view, which eventually changed to, well, maybe, but swear, guys, it was an accident. Whoops. After which, he was convicted of vehement suspicion of heresy and, quote, under threat of torture, forced to express sorrow and curse his errors. As a fun aside, allegedly after willful, under threat of torture, admitting the earth was stationary, he evidently muttered, Epur si muovo, or yet it moves. At the time of his trial, Galileo was 69 and lived the rest of his years under house arrest before he passed in 1642 of heart palpitations with a fever. Now, in terms of our topic, my love, please don't think I've forgotten. This is where things start to get interesting. Well, more interesting than they've already been. As one convicted of vehemently being suspected of heresy, family and friends were afraid the church wouldn't allow him to be buried on proper consecrated burial ground. So they worked quickly to set his body to rest in a small room outside of the main part of the Basilica of Santa Croce. In time, when it seemed the coast might be clear, Galileo's patron, Ferdinand II, raised money for a tomb to be built in the late scholar's honor. However, Pope Urban VIII said, No way! And the tomb remained unmarked for nearly 100 years. It wasn't until a pupil of Galileo's, Vincenzo Viviani, passed away in 1703 and left money and a will that specifically stated that both he 
and his mentor Galileo were to be buried together in a tomb that the remains would be disturbed. On, well, disturbing the remains, it was discovered that another body, that of a young woman, rested with him. While no one really knows who she is, it's thought that it may be that of one of his two daughters, Maria Celeste, who had died before him and, along with her sister, had been nuns. Galileo, the young unnamed woman, and Vincenzo Viviani were all reburied in a proper tomb, as per Viviani's will. However, not before one of the workers, Anton Francesco Gori, huge fan, made off with a thumb, middle finger, tooth, and vertebrae from Galileo. Oh no. For so many reasons, I imagine, the location and lives of the parts remained hidden until many, many years later, the middle finger mysteriously came to rest in an egg-shaped reliquary that now rests at the Galileo Museum in Florence, surrounded by scientific instruments and homage to the late visionary. His additional bits, the thumb, tooth, vertebrae, all came to light at a 2009 auction, after which they also joined the middle finger. Now neither of these fingers, the thumb now also sitting pretty in a gilded glass case one might normally see reserved for that of the bits of saints, are true reliquaries, so to speak, as Galileo was a suspected heretic, which is about the furthest one can get from being a saint. However, on November 1st of 1992, 356 years after Galileo's trial, the New York Times reported that Pope John Paul II recanted the conviction of suspected, I'm sorry, vehemently suspected heresy by saying the verdict had become the symbol of the church's supposed rejection of scientific progress or of dogmatic obscuritanism opposed to the free search for truth. I'm not sure how Galileo would feel for those final nine years in forced house arrest, especially after having lived the life of 2020 quarantine myself, knowing that eventually the church would admit that, eh, maybe it was a mistake, and that he was forced to publicly speak words about the universe he knew to be untrue, only to later have his very own fingers come to rest in containers that would reflect him as if having been held in high regard of that very same organization. I know how I would have felt, and that is a feeling I think is reflected perfectly by Galileo's heavenward-pointing middle finger. been many stories throughout history in which bodies have been unceremoniously taken for monetary gain. What started with grave robbing, in which the dearly departed were parted of their valuables, eventually became full-on body snatching when medical schools developed a need for cadavers while society had a need 
for their loved ones to remain peacefully in the ground. That said, the next story I have for you is one that combines these two dastardly pursuits, wherein a body was taken, but because of its inherent value, more or less, in what I am calling, and just learned about myself, the famous Chaplin Napping case. Charles Spencer Chaplin, more famously known as Charlie Chaplin, more, more famously known through his Little Tramp character, the silent film-era master of physical comedy donning the dark suit, mustache, cane, and bowler cap, held a very long and illustrative career in the world of film, writing, producing, and even composing the soundtracks to his movies as well, while all being instrumentally self-taught. While he was married several times and did have two sons with his second wife, Lita Gray, the majority of his immediate family would come from his final wife, Una O'Neill, whom he met in 1942 when considering her for an upcoming role. Now, despite the fact that at the time she was 18 and he 53, different times perhaps, but even then still raising plenty of eyebrows, in fact, her father would disown her for marrying someone his age. It was said that they were evidently inseparable after meeting, marrying only one year later to remain married for the rest of Chaplin's life, have eight children together, and according to everything I've found regarding their union with true affection. Chaplin wrote in his autobiography, As I live with Una, the depth and beauty of her character are a continual revelation to me. Even as she walks ahead of me along the narrow sidewalks, her neat little figure straight, her dark hair smoothed back, showing a few silver threads, a sudden wave of love and admiration comes over me for all that she is, and a lump comes to my throat. And in her obituary, it was said that Una had always told friends and interviewers that her husband was, quote, her world. She'd never seen or lived anything else, and that she was content. Charlie Chaplin died Christmas Day of 1977, and was buried in the Swiss village of corsier sur veve It seems, however, that not all would remain content, because just two months later, Una received a ransom demand. The thieves wanted $600,000 for, yes, the return of the late chaplain's body. Police immediately went into action, monitoring the household phone lines and closely watching the near 200 phone boxes within the area. Una thought the demand was ridiculous and refused to pay. However, then threats started being made against the two youngest children. Still, with local authorities on the case, she wouldn't budge. After five weeks of hitting the dirt, I feel like that's a true crime adjacent saying, Authorities busted in on Roman Wardas and Gantz Joganev from Poland and Bulgaria, respectively. Both men were political refugees, and as their time in Switzerland increased, 
found themselves in increasing financial difficulty. Roman, one day while reading an Italian newspaper, read about a crime in which a body was stolen for ransom and the plot was hatched. On May 17th, the two led police to a nearby cornfield in which they had temporarily buried Chaplin's body. As the mastermind, Roman Wardas received four and a half years of hard labor, while Gantz Joganev was given an 18-month suspended sentence. In the end, the law felt he really had limited responsibility for what had happened. I guess he had only attended the affair as moral support. Una and her children gratefully received Charlie's body back and reburied him in a concrete grave this time to thwart any future attempts of the same kind. And eventually on her passing, Una was buried beside her husband. As far as the thieves, I couldn't find exactly what happened to them after this whole affair. I'm just hoping they learned not to take financial advice from the crime section of the newspaper. story I have for you this week is a bit more on the mysterious side, and I would hope to have it no other way. There are those among you, my beautiful listeners, who may be familiar with the name Friedrich Wilhelm Murnau, or F.M. Murnau as he was often referred. For any like myself who didn't immediately light up with recognition, he directed the classic 1922 film Nosferatu, as well as the 1927 silent drama Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, that won the Academy Award for Unique and Artistic Picture at the very first Academy Awards in 1929, and is also on the list of AFI's 100 top films of all time. Born in the Kingdom of Prussia, within now Germany, Murnau created films for many years in Germany, serving in the Imperial Army during World War I, before emigrating to Hollywood in 1926. In total, he directed 21 films, however eight have since been lost, and while not all of them were big moneymakers, he did at the end of the day seem fairly well off financially, and amid the work he produced, was able to buy a farm in Oregon. While it is not known whether he was open or not, it is known that he was homosexual, and he never settled down on the family front, which, understandably, would have been unfortunately near impossible to do at the time. In 1931, Murnau was out for a ride on the Pacific Coast Highway in Los Angeles in his Rolls Royce, being driven by a young servant who, in all accounts and regards, was much too young and much too not really knowing how to drive, to be, well, driving him. The car crashed into an electric pole, and Murnau hit his head, hard. Hard enough that he died the very next day. 
Returning home, he was buried in the Southwest Cemetery in Stansdorf near Berlin in a small ceremony of only 11 people, some of which included Emil Jannings, Fritz Lang, and Greta Garbo. Garbo, who incidentally was so profoundly inspired by Murnau that she commissioned a death mask of him that she kept on her desk while in Hollywood. And then, in July of 2015, it was discovered that something was amiss with Murnau's grave. It had been opened. Police were called to investigate, and when they cracked it the rest of the way to take a peek, they made the horrifying discovery that what remained of Murnau's remains was everything except his head. And not only this, but there were visible traces of wax on the bones beneath, as if someone had lit candles upon the body in a ritual of sorts. Despite the apparent difficulty in moving a full-size skull, believe me, no one has ever been found or charged with the crime, and Murnau's head to this day remains missing. Now, whether the ghosts of those who have been disturbed will haunt those disturbers among the living, none of us can truly know. Well, at least it hasn't been proven, so to speak. However, I think we can all agree that at the end of the day, it's just best to respect. Respect the memory of those who have passed. Respect the wishes and feelings of those who remain. And... Respect the remains as inherently something valuable, because they are reminders of who we are and who we will become, and they matter, as we all do. Thank you so much for joining me for this week's Piece of Strange. The bonus story on the Patreon this week is about Napoleon's penis and how it's not attached to him anymore. <laughs> to find out more, check out www.patreon.com slash rocketfox. As for me now, come visit for a spell at fantasticallystrange.com and on Instagram at fantasticallystrange and even Twitter at fantasticoddpod. As always, thank you beyond so much for your support. If you're enjoying the show so far, please let me know. Maybe even a follow, share, or review. I would love to share you with everyone else. I write, research, edit, and do all of the things myself, and it is such a joy and privilege to be able to share with you stories about topics I'm passionate about, and your ear and time mean the world to me. If you do have any topics you'd like to see, any questions, comments, or just to say hi, Email me at fantasticallystrange at rocketfox.com. All sources are linked and credited in the show info. The amazing logo illustration is by Constance Hermit, and the killer intro song, Hey Dorothy, is by Cruise Machine. Thanks again, and I can't wait to see you next time. Surrender, Dorothy.
Watch your rainbows 